would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage, beginning in verse 8 once again? Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they have come now to the city of Lystra. And it begins, in Lystra there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifice to them. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. And he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the two cities that they had previously been in, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just give us living coals off the altar as we consider your word, that your truth would not only reach our ears and even reach our minds, but Lord, that your truth would reach our hearts. We want to, Lord, be ablaze for you. We want the living power of God on the inside of us that it might reach out into a world that probably needs to hear your truth more now than probably any, more, any other time in my lifetime. God, I pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How do you define success? Well, for most of us, the answer is summed up in one word, winning. We make a plan, we successfully execute it, we scoop up the rewards. As a result, we'll win the job or the contract or the game, the race, and then we'll celebrate our success. And when we are on the winning side, we tend to view ourselves as being happy. But conversely, when our plans fall apart, or the execution falls short of the need, and we don't win, then we are downcast, we're sad, and if we lose long enough and we lose often enough, we probably will give up and just quit. Which is why I find Paul and Barnabas's journey, their first journey, so puzzling. Because from a human perspective, his first missionary journey could hardly been viewed as a success. I mean, <clears throat> consider what it looked like in the eyes of these men. Uh, soon after they had begun their journey, the plan starts to unravel. On one of their key members, John Mark by name, the nephew of Barnabas, abandons the mission. 
After one tough encounter, he returns to Jerusalem and undoubtedly complained all the way to anyone who would listen about Paul's usurpation of the leadership of the team and, take, and really pushing his uncle Barnabas, Barnabas aside. And then after traveling 400 miles over sea and land, 400 very hard miles, they reached Antioch, Pisidia, and there they were reviled, they were rejected and expelled from the region, basically told to get out of town and don't come back. And so they traveled another 90 miles to Iconium. And when they reached Iconium, after some initial success, their lives are threatened and they are forced to flee lest they be killed by the people of the city. And now, as we read today, they travel 18 more miles to a small and remote city of Lystra, where Paul again has some initial success, but then is stoned and drug out of the city for dead by the same people who hours before had declared him as a god. Of course, the first question that could, should come to our mind is, why were these people in Lystra so schizophrenic in their attitude, their view, their response to the apostles? And part of the answer, maybe all of the answer, is really summed up in the story that is told. Uh, Barclay, in his commentary, usually quite reliable on these kind of historical facts, related that a story about Zeus and Hermes, the two gods, Zeus being the father of God, Hermes being the messengers of the God, that they had come to earth in disguise, come to Lycaonia, and no one in the land would give them any hospitality until two old peasants, one by the name of Philemon, the other by the name of Bossus, and they took them in, and as a result, the whole population, except for these two people, were wiped out by the gods for their lack of hospitality. And in return or reward, Bacchus and Philemon were made the keepers, the guardians of the splendid temple that existed outside the city of Lystra. And when they died, they were turned into two great oak trees that grew up on either side of the temple. So that when Paul had healed this crippled man, the people of Lystra immediately determined that they must be Zeus and Hermes returned and they better not make the same mistake they did the last time. And so they put on every, every excellent act of hospitality that they could, beginning most importantly with worshiping these gods that had appeared in their midst. So that if the story is accurate as Barclay recounts it, the locals were really... Uh, <coughs> going through an extreme emotional high followed by an ever lower emotional low. That on one hand, if these were the gods, every blessing earthly, every bounty benefit that could accrue to them, imaginable to their minds, could just as quickly be taken away from them. And so they go from this emotional high to this deflation and disappointment that these aren't gods, they're just a couple of guys that showed up in town. Well, Solomon said in Proverbs uh, 13, 12, he said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, we all know what it feels like to be disappointed. And it's one of those things when disappointment comes, especially when we have a very high expectation and then something quite the opposite takes place. I mean, think about it. You have this booming economy and everything's going really well and say, just, just for speculation, say suddenly everything is locked down you can't work, you can't make any money, your business goes out of business, you begin to suffer all sorts of things. And if you can kind of follow me into this fantasy thought life I'm taking you into, suddenly you begin to experience a really major emotional deflation 
that doesn't seem to, seem to ever want to end. And then you begin to wonder, why am I depressed? Why am I discouraged? Well, what we may have experienced over seven or eight months, they experience in about seven or eight minutes. Very high and then very low. And this may explain what we see as a kind of schizophrenic swing from wanting to worship the apostles on the one hand and being easily persuaded to murder them shortly afterwards. And I think what is important to note is that for the first time, there's no reference in this city of the presence of a Jewish community or any synagogue. The apostles had ventured into a space where there is no significant Jewish witness. The people have little experience with, with God in, in the sense of being a moral being. He is a God to them under the Greek gods were amoral beings. They had no sense of right or wrong or good or evil. It was all about just winning much like politics today, that essentially there was a pagan prism through which they viewed life that didn't have a moral or ethical component to it. It's whatever we can get the gods to do to benefit and give us an increase. And yet these were the very people that Paul, in fact, had been called to reach. That he wasn't necessarily called to reach the great, but we might say he was called to reach the gross. These were the people who were the kind of the uncouth, the unwashed masses. This, this little town, which was off the main road, but known for its tremendous agricultural wealth, was a working man, blue collar community of farmers and merchants who simply lived off of the works of their own hands and survived simply. They were not the educated. Paul said in chapter 15 at the end of his letter to the Romans that he said, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And that's such a, a noble statement to say, but when you begin to live it out in reality, it's not quite so glorious. I'm going to go where people have never heard the gospel of Christ. I'm going to go to the places where they don't even know that there is a God in heaven who is one God, that monotheism is not an, an existing concept. In fact, the Jews and the early Christians were accused of being atheists because they believed in only one God. And so you're going into a culture which has no framework for understanding what you're saying to them, and you're going to start from ground zero and begin to build on that into their lives. Let me tell you, friends, there is probably little that is hard to accomplish as that. And yet Paul said, this was my driving ambition. This was my driving passion to find these places where nobody else would go and to plant the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who had not only been uninformed, but in some ways untainted by previous religious experiences. You see, without that kind of moderating philosophical, philosophical and religious influence, the Lystrians were really left with only two options in their worldview to understand these men that had come into their community. They were either con men or they were demons since they weren't gods. And fearing that they in fact might be both, they quickly reverted to the inhospitality that just a few days before they were so afraid of being guilty of. Isn't that interesting how we do that? We swing from extremes to extreme. Their animus, of course, was aided by the, uh, as we read in the text, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and persuaded the people that these men needed to die. 
I mean, it's an amazing thing. You wonder, how does anybody have that much hatred in their heart? And I think the only answer is it's inspired by the powers of darkness. It's inspired by satanic forces. So that the danger for Paul and Barnabas and the rest of their team was they could become so focused on the individuals that were doing the acts that they lose sight that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces in heavenly places. And that's kind of a challenge that we face right now in our own time that we're in. It's so easy in this kind of polarized world we live in, this politicized world. I think about how the psalmist said, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the Lord our God. We could contemporize that by saying some trust in pundits and some trust in politicians. But Christian, do you trust in the Lord your God? Because the easiest thing for Paul and Barnabas and the rest of their team to do at this moment was to simply say, these people aren't worth saving. These people don't care about the truth. These people are the captives of Satan. Let's just wipe off our feet and march on to some place where they'll treat us the way we deserve to be treated. I often think about that when we're mistreated. I, I, I always think about what Woody Allen said. I would never belong to a club that would have me as a member. Gail Irwin used to say, if you have one person in your congregation, that's one more than you deserve. I mean, this idea that somehow that we are promised to be treated well and to be feted and to be admired and applauded, when in fact, the biggest danger for us, Jesus said, was that we would desire the applause of men more than we would desire the approval of God. It is so easy in the midst of perilous times, and, and I think we are in perilous times as a nation, as a world. I don't know if we are in the perilous times that Paul spoke of to Timothy that marked the end, or we're just in another one of a series of perilous times that will come and go through human history, but nonetheless, they still remain perilous. And the danger is that we think the enemy is in flesh and blood. And even though these are people who literally were trying to kill them, <laughs> you know, these were people who were literally intent on taking their life, and yet they didn't fall into the snare of thinking that the enemy were the people who were trying to kill them, but rather their enemy was the demonic spirits that empowered those who wanted to kill them. Now, I know for some of you, that's a distinction without meaning, but it is an important distinction if we are going to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord in difficult circumstances. The temptation is all too easy. But you see, what happens when we misidentify the real source of the evil that we're facing in our world is that we begin to focus on the wrong targets and we become, as Paul said, we become carnal. When he began his letter to the Corinthians, he started in 1 Corinthians 1 saying, are you not yet carnal? Because you're saying, I'm a Paul and I'm Apollos. You see, the reality is that when we begin to identify ourselves too strongly with human agents, and I'm not saying human agents aren't there, and I'm not saying that some human agents are better than others, but the reality is that we don't put our trust in man, we put our trust in God. Because men will always fail us, no matter how well-intentioned they are. We put our trust in God if we, in fact, want to stay safely in his care. Yet the question I find much more important is, in the face of all of this unending opposition, why didn't they just quit? 
Actually, Paul has left us some tantalizing hints on why he didn't quit. First of all, as we read last, night, last week and have talked about over several weeks, that suffering to him was part of the ministry. That the very moment of his conversion, he was told, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And I think this is one of the really scary things about the church in our culture today. We feel that we need to avoid suffering at all costs. And don't, don't mistake, I'm not a masochist. I'm not looking for some kind of pain to come my way. If I can avoid it, I will avoid it. But sometimes, inevitably, we find ourselves as we stand for Christ having to face the ire of a culture that doesn't want anything to do with Christ. That even you begin to have a church which is so concerned with finding the blessings and the prosperity and the benefits of the Christian life, and believe me, there are many. There are many. I mean, it's not that hard to be blessed in the Christian life when you start doing what Jesus says, when you work hard, you're honest, and you take care of other people. Somehow blessings come your way, and you're prospered in that. And yet at the same time, there will also come negative stuff. People who are driven by their own personal demons. You see, every one of us has a certain character deficiency. That when we are disquieted and unhappy and troubled in our own souls, rather than looking inside and saying, Lord, what is it that I'm so upset about? We tend to look around us to say, whom can I blame for how I feel? And even in so much of the political dialogue, it's all about finding somebody who can fix all the things that I don't think are right in my life so that I can feel good about myself on the inside. And let me, let me tell you, you think these people in Lister are disappointed? You become equally disappointed. The minute you begin to deify any human being as being the answer to what's wrong in your life, you begin to follow a false god. You have become an idolater. Because all men have feet of clay. All men have feet of clay. If there's any answer to the circumstance we're in at this time, it's, it doesn't come by demonizing other people, even those who may be demonized. Because being demonized is a horrific way to live your life. And it drives you to do terrible things. But Paul knew that suffering was part of it. We talked about it last week in Acts 20 when he said in verses 23 and 24, he says, I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Do I need to add undeservedly? I know that I will be thrown into prison and I will go through hardships that I don't deserve, that I didn't earn, I don't have coming to me, but I know that they're going to come. However, he said, however, that big word that says, I don't let that stop me. For I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's why he said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Over and over again, the writers of the New Testament told us, you need to understand that this is SOP. This is standard operating procedure. That if you declare the name of Christ, you will have consequences that often are negative. And therefore, that's why Peter said, don't react as if something strange has happened to you. But secondly, he was confident 
that God was in control, that God would in fact rescue him. He said to Timothy again, you know all about what happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. I guess being raised from the dead is a pretty good rescue. Yet thirdly, and maybe even more, he believed in the promise given to all those whom God sends forth to do his work. As he said it to Moses in Deuteronomy 11, he said to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses and Joshua. He said, despite how it looks, I will glorify myself. I will, I will honor the seed of my word that you plant wherever you plant it and it will grow up and produce a harvest. In fact, that's what we see happen in every place the apostles preached. Churches were planted. The kingdom of God expanded. Even in the most antagonistic climates or cultures like we see here in Lystra. And within a few hundred years, not just in the area of Galatia where he is ministering, but in the entire Roman world, it would be reached with the gospel so that we're told by the time that Constantine became the emperor in 313 that half the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity even though it was an illegal religion with severe consequences. But you see, before something like that can happen, somebody has to be willing to be the first one to go. As Paul would explain in Romans 10, he said, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? For Paul, there was no confusion or uncertainty. This was his life's purpose. As he told the Corinthians, for Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. So many of us have bought into the false concept that we have to have a certain level of intellectual attainment before we can speak about the things of God. And Paul, it's interesting, was a man of amazingly huge intellect. Most people would easily put his IQ in the 160 plus area, which, I mean, if you compare it to me at uh, just over 80, is, uh, you know, this guy's pretty bright, right? And yet he said, I, I realized that if you persuade somebody to believe, someone else can come along and persuade them not to believe. And that's why you have, often have people in your church who are convinced, but they're not converted. They follow a lifestyle, they follow a pattern. And as we talked about last week, there is this great divide when they go out from us because they were not of us, even though they did and said all the right things. They had the right translation. They had their name embossed on the cover. They knew when to stand up and sit down. They knew a whole liturgy and they had it all together and that was a pattern of life for them. And yet, one day they just simply walk away. Suddenly church is closed and they can't come anymore and before long they stop attending anything. Do you know what the, the surveys tell us? The studies have been done. 
30 days after the churches were closed down, half of the believers stopped going to church. They stopped following online and the number has continued just to go downhill and downhill and downhill. We won't tell them that you're here. But, <laughs> but you realize that as someone once said, I just realized I don't really need the church to be happy. And when people say things like that, you realize that they may know all about it. They may have been persuaded since childhood to believe, but they've just never met the Savior in a personal, intimate way. That Christ becomes a means to some end instead of being the end that gives meaning. So that there's a difference between when, when Jesus is, is uh, doing the miracles, he feeds the 5,000 with fish and loaves and everybody's amazed, everybody decided. And John tells us in his gospel in the sixth chapter that the crowds came to take him and to make him their king. I mean, the guy who gives us free food, how can you ask for a better king? And Jesus said, well, here's, here's my conditions. If you can eat my flesh and you can drink my blood then you can be my followers. And it says, many of them turned away because they said, his sayings are hard. It's an interesting phrase, you know. People say, yeah, I, I tried Christianity. It was just too hard. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. <laughs> it's, it's a reality that if I love my wife, I'm gonna be faithful to my wife and I'm gonna keep all of her commandments. She told me, you put this caught on with this shirt today, and so I kept her commandments. I, your will be done. I'm not joking. <laughs> she bought it for a reason, and she wants me to wear it. Okay, here I am. But it's so easy for us to miss the whole point. That at that moment, Jesus looked at those 12 guys who had been traveling with him. He said, you want to leave also? And, they, and Peter finally speaks out. I can almost feel that awkward moment, you know, that's there. Because we all know how it is. You, you don't want to be the guy who raises your hand and, and makes the comment. You want to let somebody else be stupid first. And Peter, who could not contain himself, sometimes he was brilliant, sometimes he was unbelievable. But he said, Lord... Where else we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Well, I could have told him where he could. You can go back to Capernaum or Bethsaida. You can get back on the boat. You can start living at home again and, and doing the thing that you were doing before you ever met Jesus, making money, catching fish, eating well and living easily instead of living this migrant itinerant life that you're on. There's all sorts of options and things you could have done. You could become a tradesman. You can become some kind of worker in whatever field you want. You can take up farming. There's so many options. But why was this not an option for Peter? And the answer is really simple. That knowing Christ had ruined him for anything but following Jesus. Yeah, there's other things I can do, but why would I want to do that? Why would I want to follow him? Where would I go? So that even when Christ is crucified and it feels like everything has gone wrong, they still stay waiting because without him they have no 
define meaning for their life whatsoever. There's no purpose left. I would say to you that as is always the case, Satan's best effort to block the furtherance of gospel are always turned by God into being the very catalyst that he uses to spread it. When we think about circumstances in our life, can you imagine anything worse than being manhandled by a group of angry people and having them throw you in the middle of the courtyard of the city and start pummeling you with large stones until they are convinced that you're dead and then they drag your beaten body outside and throw it into a ditch and walk away? I mean, that's got to be a pretty painful way to go. That would be a very definitive moment. We'd say, well, that's the end of that. That Satan inspired these men of Lystra to kill Paul in an effort to stop his preaching, to silence his mouth, and additionally to terrify anybody else that would think to follow him and try to do the same thing. Yet God has always has declared, I mean, I think what he said, what Joseph said to his brothers, that what Satan and his minions intend to do, he said, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about many and to save many. What Satan meant for evil, God turned into good. At this point, the text reveals that we're already the beginnings of a small band of believers. In verse 19, it said they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead, but the disciples, not, not Barnabas and not the ministry team, the disciples, people who already had chosen to follow Jesus. They gathered around him. And I love this, you know. Did they have a, a, a big prayer meeting? No, it's more like a group of gawkers. You know, it's kind of like when you see the wreck on the highway, you go real slow, not because you're trying to be safe, but because you want to see, you know, what's happened and if there's any dead bodies laying around. They gather around, they're all standing in a circle, they're looking at Paul, and then the weirdest thing happens. He got up and went back into the city. I mean, again, I'm saying, if I get up, the city is the last place I'm going back to. He didn't head on to the next location. He said, I'm back. Now, curiously, we're not told how the Lystrans or the disciples reacted. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you like to fill in those blanks? But apparently... There were many more who believed, including one young man who became a leader of the early church. He would become Paul's closest companion, his co-worker, and the leader of the church of Ephesus. A young man was there by the name of Timothy. His mother and his grandmother had become believers. He became a believer. And on Paul's next trip, Paul takes him with him to become his co-worker for the remaining years of his life. We don't know how many people composed the church of Lystra, but we know this, that one young man came to Christ in such an impactful way that he changed the world. He was a legacy player. <laughs> he was a franchise player for the kingdom of God. That's why when, we, when things are tough, it's so important to remember the words of the Old Testament prophets. When, when Zechariah says, don't despise the days of small things. 
Small things literally could be translated those moments of extended insignificance. Those days where you feel like you don't really matter, you don't really count, that you don't have any significant impact. He says the danger is that we look at that and we try to avoid it at all costs. Sometimes we make really kind of strange efforts to have a moment of notoriety and importance that we do something that stands out and we say things, well, at least I live my life. And somebody will yell in the background, stupid and foolishly, yes, but you lived it. And he says, don't let yourself get caught up in that. Don't let yourself get drugged down into that. But rather, he says, because it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's why Isaiah said, it is my word that goes out from my mouth that will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. There's an important division of labor that many of us as Christians miss. It's our job to preach. It's God's job to reach. And understand that you don't save anybody. All you can do is give testimony to what God has done for you, how he has saved you, how he's changed your life. But it's God's job to take those words that you spoke, whether they're eloquent or they're stumbling, and to take those utterances and to bury them deep into the heart. The man who said the most profound thing that began me coming to Christ said them in a fit of anger. And I could tell he wanted to strangle me because I was screwing up his whole witness. I had been trained since early age how to push the buttons of my elders. I'd become very good at it. I took pride in being a provocateur. And I had this guy on the ropes. But in a fit of anger, he blurted out something that cut right to the heart. To this day, well, he's probably in heaven now. Now he's sitting back and going, I thought I really blew that one, but it actually worked out pretty good. <laughs> it is a simple statement, not even profound. He says, you know what your problem is? And I go, what? <laughs> Bring it on, dude. <laughs> he says, you're trying to make God in your own image, which was exactly what I was trying to do. I wanted a God that I could fit into the folds of my wallet and carry around with me and pull it out when I needed like a credit card. But I certainly didn't want to give him control of my life. But suddenly in that moment, there was such a deep conviction that came over to me and I knew that's wrong. That's horribly wrong. And I became haunted by that thought until it drove me to my knees and brought me to a surrender of the will of God. God said, it's my spirit. It's my word that empowers by my spirit to change and transform people's lives that even in the most intense railing and criticism, if we just simply said, but I believe, and I know that my Redeemer lives. Our job is just to speak it, and it's God's job to implant it in people's hearts. But there is one other notable thing that happened after Paul was stoned. In fact, he says in his letter to 2 Corinthians, 14 years ago. Now, if you begin to look at when Paul was in Lystra and when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians and you begin to connect calendar dates, we're talking about 14 years. 
It's very likely that Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, was describing what happened to him, not externally and physically, but what happened in the spirit realm at that moment that he went unconscious. Listen to what he said. Telling them his hardships, he makes the comment, once I was stoned. Now, it's interesting because Paul lists all sorts of five times this, three times that, twice this, I've had this happen, that happened, but once I was stoned. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. In, in Jewish cosmology, the, the air around us where the birds fly is called the first heaven. When they look at the stars, the planets, moon, that's the second heaven. The third heaven was a way of metaphorically referring to the place where God is. A dimension outside of the dimension of time, matter, and space. It's his eternal reality. He says, I, was, I knew a man who was caught up into that very presence of God. He says that whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. God knows. But then he says, this man was caught up to paradise. Literally, paradisimo in the Greek means the sum total of blessedness. The ultimate of fulfillment and pleasure and joy. And he heard inexpressible things. In other words, there, were, there are not words in human vocabulary in any language that can describe what I saw. It is indescribable because we have no words to describe it. He heard inexpressible things, things that it is not permitted to tell. What it really implies is not that he would be in, in sin for telling you. He says it's, it would be a crime to try to describe something that was so indescribable. A crime to describe something that's so indescribable. It's like eating an unknown fruit that you've never tasted before and you bite into it and suddenly you have a sensation of flavors that transform your view of that fruit and from that point on you look for it to find it, to have it, to taste it and to continue eating it for the rest of your life because it's this tantling cross between an apple and bacon. <laughs> you know, we all have our happy spots. Don't judge me because of mine. But see, contextually, we know that Paul is speaking of himself and that God had allowed him to peer through the veil that separates heaven and earth to see what was awaiting him on the other side of this life, which was something that was inexpressible, undescribable. Or what he would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That there's nothing in this world that you've ever experienced that you can say, well, heaven's like this. There's nothing you can sit back and imagine in the most abstract, furthest imagination that even comes close to what he has prepared for us because, again, it exists in a reality that's removed from the dimensions of time, matter, and space. It's the heavenly universe. A real place, more real than this place because it is timeless and it is unending, whereas this place is ticking and it will come to an end. Yet this was so indelibly imprinted in Paul's mind, the fear of death was gone. Uncertainty over the future was wiped away. Anxiety in the present was calmed and eternity was so certain 
that he would later write to Timothy as he's waiting to be executed, waiting to be beheaded. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, he says, I am suffering, yet I am not ashamed. That means literally also disappointed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Many years ago, uh, a family friend of my wife and I's um, contracted cancer and uh, she just deteriorated very quickly. Young mom with two young kids and she shriveled down to almost nothing. She was down to about 80 pounds and one afternoon her husband had picked her up and carried her to put her in the bathtub to wash her because she couldn't walk anymore, couldn't care for herself at all. And when he put in the tub, he went out to take care of something, came back, and she was still in the tub, but she had passed away. He was a police officer, so he wasn't afraid of death, and he lifted her out of the tub, and he laid her on the couch, I mean, on the carpet on the floor, and then went, pre-cell phone days, (laughs) went to call the the ambulance to come and pick her up. When he came back and after he'd made the call, he walked in and she's sitting upright. This green, boiling, smoking stuff was vomited up on the carpet and burned a hole right through the carpet. They came and they took her to the hospital and they couldn't find a trace of cancer in her body. She's now in her 80s and still with us. But she told me one time, she said, you know, the hardest part about it is when things got really hard and difficult was not to contemplate suicide. Because she said, I knew what was there. I I went into the presence of the Lord. She said, she was a musician, and she said, I heard music that was unlike anything I ever heard. It was like water flowing through every cell of my body. Its beauty was incomprehensible. And to stand there in the presence of his glory. And she said, God said, I'll give you a choice. You can come home and be with me, or you can go home and raise your kids. She says, I chose to come home and raise my kids, but oftentimes I wished I hadn't. Well, you've got kids. You know what it's like. (laughs) Somebody told me, my kids are driving me to drink. I said, that all? (laughs) Might have just about driven me over the edge. Yet apparently such dramatic insights and revelations come with a a cost. Paul follows up his heavenly experience by saying, right on the heels of saying, I saw this, he said, but to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Think about that for a moment. I mean, wouldn't it be easy to begin to think that kind of like you're cut above everybody else? (laughs) Look what God showed me. This is always the prophet's trap, the faith healer's trap. Anybody who is gifted in some unique way that people need at various times in their life, it's easy. It's the problem that people like me who stand behind pulpits struggle with. That somehow we think we have something to offer. But he says, to keep me from becoming succeeded because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. There's so much in that passage, I could spend a long time talking about it. And you know, I'm not just threatening you. (laughs) But what was the thorn? What was the weakness? Our most ancient records, especially writings of people like Tertullian and Jerome, identified as being a physical infirmity in his eyes, that his eyesight was damaged. It appears that the heavenly vision left him with an impairment of his earthly vision. The word that's translated weaknesses is the Greek word for infirmity. More often than not, it's referred throughout the Gospels as being the physical infirmities that people had, physical illness or physical sickness. And so that seems to be the most likely conclusion. It comports well with what Paul says about him in his letter to the Galatians when he writes to him. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. A man of impaired vision oftentimes writes very large letters so that he can see what he's writing. And then he adds, he says, if if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Yet in the end, all of that mattered little because Paul said to the Philippians, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. We know that Paul lost all things the position he was in before he was converted, the rabbi of the church, of the synagogue of the freedmen required him to be over 30 years of age. He had to have a high level of academic attainment. He had to come from a family of wealth and substance. He had to have a wife. He had to have children. And even though Paul never mentions them, undoubtedly he lost them all when he became a Christian. He says, I've lost everything. Maybe that's why he referred to Timothy as my own true son in the faith, the son that he lost. But he says, all those things that I I could point to as being marks of my success, marks of attainment, he says, I consider them to be rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he said, here's my goal in life. Here's what my ambition is. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. To die as he died. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. When's the last time you prayed that? If you're like me, it's Lord... Keep pain away from me as much as possible. (laughs) But he said, there's something profoundly intimate when you are going through suffering that there's an intimacy with God that can only be found that really brings you close to the heart of God in those moments when you are going through whatever it is you're going through, God has the capacity to be more real, more present, more powerful than ever. 
And so Paul said, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold for, of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to yet have been taken hold of. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I forget what's behind. I strain ahead for what is ahead. I press towards the goal that he has set for me. And I guess that's the question we have to deal with, isn't it? Are we straining to get ahead? Are we straining to win? Are we pressing towards, straining towards the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus? That may seem like a simple and direct question. But I find this is one of the hardest things for me to consistently navigate in my life. That we live in a world of constant distractions. Some are entertaining and delightsome to the senses and other ones are just painful and terrible. And, and, and we're torn by these things and we're focusing on all these things going around. And it's so easy to get so caught up and so transfixed by what's wrong in the world that we stop straining to reach our heavenly goal. I know that many of you are verklempt because of the election. We think about the R's and the D's, you know, <laughs> the parties, the R's and D's, the righteous and the demons. No, I mean, excuse me. <laughs> I didn't say that. That was Drew. Drew said that. I know I try to disguise my, my feelings. At least this crowd laughed. Who knows what's waiting out there for me? <laughs> Security! <laughs> but think about what Paul said, and I, I, I want to read you one last passage before I'll think about quitting. But we know it, well, first part we know well, don't we? Romans eight twenty eight. he says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That's a hard one to swallow sometimes. It's hard when you're going through a hard time and somebody says, well, brother... God works everything to the good. Praise the Lord. And you're sitting there saying, yes, but how do I get along without another, my left leg? <laughs> I mean, you know, I have a major adjustment to make in my life. How do I get along when I've lost my job? I've lost my family. I've lost my friends. I've lost my income. How, uh, d you know, don't just throw that platitude out at me and expect me to suddenly snap out of it. That's kind of cruel and unusual punishment. But he says, we know that. The word know there is it's epigenosis. It's, it's experiencing, it's experiential knowledge. We've learned from the experience of following Christ that somehow even the most ugly things in our life have a way of being used by God in the perfection of his economy, that he recycles every horrible thing and turns it into something good for his glory. But then he adds, if God be for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then he asks the questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life, and believe me, he was convinced that neither death nor life could separate him from God. He experienced that personally. He said, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So as we look into the future and we say, God, what's, what's going to happen? We can make our guesses. We can pontificate. We can you know, try to give our ideas of what the future is going to look like and what this is going to happen, that happens, on and on it goes. But one thing that we can say with certainty is I know that regardless of what happens, there is nothing that can separate me from God's love. Because his love for me is not dependent upon my love for him, thankfully. But his love for me is predicated on his nature, on who he is. He loves me because that's who God is. And I can know that whatever happens, that love will never depart. And no matter what takes place, God is going to work that together for the good. And so... As I come into this election season, I'm, I mean, I, I, I keep it very well hidden, but I have my preferences. <laughs> but whichever way it goes, I know that God's going to do the thing that's going to bring the most people to Christ, and that secondly, is going to make his church godly again. That's what he wants. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to hear your heart and your voice. I mean, I, I do drone on and on so many times, and I apologize for that infirmity, Lord, but I pray, God, in the precious name of your son, Jesus, that you'd put burning coals inside of our hearts, that sometimes your word, as, as Ezekiel the prophet put it, and, and even John the apostle put it, that as you said to the two witnesses, that they would eat of this bread and it would be sweet in their mouth, but it would be bitter in their stomachs. That the sweetest word of God sometimes brings the most painful news. And yet, God, your testimony to us is that you are faithful to the very end. And you, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we need to be faithful to the end. Deliver us from temptation, Lord. Keep the, the evil from us, Lord. Don't let us distort your truth into some kind of justification for hatred, anger, jealousy, resentment. Forgive us when we hate those we see as the threats to our lives, our 
family, our nation, our republic, Lord. Help us to resist that temptation and instead go, God, the enemy, Satan, is behind all of this. That is where I, you need to strike God.